Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. My name is John Green and I'm your host and thanks for joining me today here on this Sunday, July the 18th, 2021. I'm going to be talking today about something that's near and dear to my heart and that is rest. Um, I, I feel like for a long time I was praying for God to give me rest. That he would give me rest from, from the, the, the labor of planting a church. Before that it was for the, the rest from the labor of trying to do pastoral care with about 1,100 people in a church and trying to make sure that I touched base with everybody who might need me to touch base with them. It's just I, f- I feel like I was exhausted for a long period of time. And it's because I wasn't entering into the rest of God. And, but all of that, all that weariness that I experienced and all that uh, went through to get to that place brought me to a place where I can actually, for the first time in my life really in a lot of ways, experience the rest of God. Because it, it, it's the, the entering into not just the fullness of belief in Jesus, but, but it's experiencing His presence in that rest. It, it's it's a huge thing, and, and it took, in some ways, it took this whole thing that happened with our son, Will, to bring me to the place where I could do that. Because you would think that that would be the most exhausting time in my life. Is You know, you've got a son who, who is in neurotrauma-intensive care, and he's in a coma for over a month. And, and you would think that that would be the most stressful time of your life. And what people don't really understand is it was not. And it's largely because I knew that I knew that I knew what God told us that first day. And that is, is that, that everything was going to be okay. The thing that's, that's really surprised me in all this really isn't that, that Will's making a full recovery or any of that stuff. And please keep us in prayer because Friday of this week, Will has surgery to, to put back the what they call skull flaps, the pieces of skull that they removed in order to get access to the brain and also to relieve the pressure on the brain. So that surgery is Friday of this week. But, but from the beginning, literally the first day, when, when we woke up the next morning, Suzanne and I both knew that everything was going to be okay. There were a lot of things that threatened all along the way to knock us off center and to take away the peace and the rest that we were feeling. But the reality is is that, that he reiterated again and again and again to us during that time that, that things were going to be all right. And so there, there would be a, you know, an upset or whatever happened with, um, with the recovery or even way before even anybody was thinking of in terms of recovery. Things would happen. The doctors would say something. A nurse would say something and tell us how bad things were. Um, and, and, you know, it, it was one of those things where we just kind of looked at one of the doctors particularly. I just wanted to say to her, she said, things are still really bad. I said, really? I mean, he's in a coma in the neurotrauma ICU. Thank you, Captain Obvious, for that statement. But but the problem wasn't that she made a stupid statement uh, that didn't need to be made at all. The problem was it came on a day when there had been some hopeful things happen. And I don't know why the world wants to steal your joy and steal your peace away from you, but it does. And, and every time this stuff would come up, it would be just a reminder of of how fragile our peace and our rest can be and and how much other people will affect it you know everybody want nobody really likes you to be at peace it seems that that we just i can most of the time in ministry actually my peace would be broken by by something people would say and i don't think it was always intentional 
But sometimes it was. I mean, literally every single time for a long period of time that I wouldn't be there on a Sunday morning. Like we went up and did a wedding one time. Had a great time. It was a really blessed couple of days in every way that it could have been blessed. We went up to Virginia and did a wedding and and on the way home. I mean, we're driving back that afternoon and somebody had to call me and tell me that somebody else had done something, you know, dumb, something they knew I didn't want them to do. They had done it in the service that day. And it's like, why did you do that? Why would you have done that to me on this day? And it was multiple times when Suzanne and I would get away. We'd be away a few days with the boys or just with one another and had really had a blessed time. And then on our way home, I mean, nobody could even wait for us to get back. And people would call us and tell us this stuff. And and it was like, you know, that could have waited. I didn't need to know that today. There's not a thing in the world I could do about it. But, But it was constantly people trying to steal that peace and that joy. And sometimes it's people who just create problems out of whole cloth, you know. Um, it was a rumor for a while because I hadn't gotten my North Carolina license plates yet that we were going to move back to Pauley's Island. And everybody in the church knew this rumor. Well, the reality is is that I needed to go get a brake sensor taken care of that was going to cost me about 500 bucks, and I was delaying doing it. And that was it. That was a story. I had bought a house. <laughs> we bought a house. We, we put our kids in school. We did all that stuff. But nope, then I found out that there's this rumor running around out there like that. I mean, people can't stand peace. You know, there's way too many people like drama in their lives. And they have to stir something up and they have to have something going all the time. And sometimes we, we make our own drama. Sometimes we make our own drama through bad decisions and all that kind of stuff and and we cause the drama that comes into our lives but sometimes we just we just can't stand peace and we can't stand it when somebody else has peace and we don't but in this i mean with will's thing nobody wanted to disturb our peace and we had it we had it from the beginning it was it was not a stressful time for us because we knew what the lord had said and and that was the most important thing was did god say you know, and you could keep going back and go back to Genesis 3. Did God really say? That was the question the serpent asked. Did God really say this? And I mean, there was one point in time when Suzanne just I, I just cratered in the middle of, of this whole thing. And I had to go lift her uh, chin and say, look at me. Tell me right now what you believe God said. And then, and, and, But it was leaning into that and trusting in what we knew we had heard God say that we were able to rest through this thing, you know? There was some uh, a little bit of stress about, okay, what are we going to do about the next step? And our stress about, but minimal. And people who are around us during this time can tell you, yeah, that th- those people really were not struggling with stress during all this mess. And it's because I knew what the Lord had said. And so I knew that I could ro- rely on that. You know, and I've been in situations like that before, um, when something looked really bad, but the Lord had told me things were going to be okay. And so we, we plowed through and we got through these things. doesn't mean there won't be, you know, moments of time. But, but what he wants for us is to rest and rely on his promises. And that's what I want to talk about today. It's, it, it's in all of our lessons in some way. And, and what it's going to come down to is, is that, that we've got to lay hold of it. We've got to want it badly enough to actually do it. Because he promises that he, it, you know, one of the great things in in the twenty third Psalm that I've that I've just 
you can almost dream about this, is, is that he restores my soul. He leads me beside the still waters and he restores my soul. You know, are you in that place now where you feel like you need your soul restored? You know, because I was before this whole thing with Will happened. And, and it, God used this thing to restore my soul, to give me peace, to give me rest. And I resent it when somebody wants to take that away from me. When somebody wants to ask me to do something that's their agenda and not my agenda, not God's agenda. It's rest is the place we need to move from. It's the place we were originally intended to move, right? Because we were created on the sixth day. And what what happened on the seventh day? God rested from his labors. So he invited us first to rest and to enjoy the Sabbath with him and to appreciate all of his creation and what he had done along with him. And that's the point of the Sabbath. And we as Christians, I believe, really and truly need to get better about keeping a Sabbath. How do we do that? And, and you know, there's some things we need to explore in that, but, but we need to be better at that because we need to have that time of rest. That was what God invited us into, was, was that we would rest first and then we would work from that place of rest and contemplation of all that he had done. And it's always supposed to be the pattern for our lives, and we just don't allow it. We're too busy. We have too many things going on to enter into anything that even remotely resembles rest. But in this, uh, in the three lessons we have today, it's there in all of them. Because it talks about enmity and strife and enemies and things like that all through these lessons. In this Second Samuel 7, 1-14 passage today, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest... From all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord's with you. It sounds like a good thing to do, right? It sounds like a godly thing to do. I'm going to make a house for God. He's given me a house. But, But David is at rest. And David's not able to fully enter into that rest because he believes that he's feeling guilt, right? He's feeling guilt that he lives in a house. He didn't build the house. I mean, God ultimately did, but the but the proximate cause of the house being built is Hiram, the king of Tyre, who sent cedars along with carpenters and other people to do the work to build David a house in Jerusalem. And so David is is coming into rest, but in that rest, he can't rest. Because he feels guilt, because I need to do something for God. It's what we always think, right? We need to do something for God. And and so we can gin up a lot of good works in our minds and say, I should be doing this, right? And so Nathan, it sounds good to Nathan. Yeah, go for it, man. That's exactly what you need to do. God needs a house. You're right. It is kind of weird, David, that you live in this fine, luxurious place and, and God's out there in a tent, in the backyard somewhere. And so he, he tells him, go for it, because it makes perfect sense. And a lot of the things that we do make perfect sense. But if God didn't say do it, then, then we're not entering into the rest of God. We're entering into something else that when he needs us to do things, when he wants us to do things, he'll make it very clear to us that what we need to do. And so at that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. 
but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling place in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? I don't know why he specifies cedar there, but that's exactly what God says. And, and in, in, to answer that question, it would sort of be, well, we were moving around all the time, and now we found kind of a permanent place here in Jerusalem. This is going to, you know, this is the place where we need to build you a house. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Egypt. Israel, sorry, good grief. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and I'll plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. You hear all that? I mean, he's talking about different ways of peace coming in. I've been with you. I've cut off your enemies from before you. I've, I'll appoint a place for my people where they will be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. So it, what a promise, right? I mean, he is promising David the same basic stuff that he promised Abraham back in the day, that I'll be with you wherever you go. I will make for you a great name. I will give you rest. I will give you peace. I'll protect you in every single way. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. He's going to make out of David a house, the house of David, from which will come Messiah. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body, and I'll establish his kingdom. See, I mean, this, this, uh, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body. That, you know, think about that. That's the, the issue, right, for Abraham and Sarah. As I said before, the serpent asked Eve, did God really say? Well, that's exactly what happens between Abraham and Sarah. She's, you know, God promised you that you would be the father of many nations and all that, but, but did he actually say that, that a child would come from me? So maybe what, what the best thing to do would be for you to sleep with, with my maid over here, sleep with Hagar, and then we get Ishmael, and then we get enmity. And we get division, and there's no rest, right? I mean, there's no rest at all after that. Because the first thing that happens is, is that after the child is born, what, is, what does Sarah want? She says, you've you got to get the slave woman out of here. I can't bear it. And so he sends her away, and then God sends him back, sends her back, and they come, they come back. And, and then you've got to send her away, him away. The child, whenever he gets, whenever Isaac gets weaned, and, and now there's something she sees between, in the play between uh, Ishmael and Isaac that that concerns her, and says, "Send send him away," and so they have to send him away, and God says to do it, and, and so there's then there's this long season of peace it seems, until God, in Genesis 22, says, "Take your son, your only son, the one you love." And take him in sacrifice to me. I mean, there's always that potential that God's going to disturb the peace in that way. But but then he had peace through the rest of his life. I mean, we, we don't get to retire. We don't get to just to, to enter into rest and then do nothing for God the rest of our lives. That That's not the way it works. And it's not what I mean. But, but you'll know 
when God moves you to do something, we don't need to keep ourselves busy doing God's work. But, but he promises David that he's going to make him a great name, which is exactly what he did for Abraham. And then he's going to build him a house. And then this offspring that will come from your body, you don't have to worry about that, David. I'm, I've got that taken care of. It's a prophetic word that God's saying is, is that you don't have to worry about this. You know, the, the first king, Saul, was certainly not David's father, but and so how was the succession going to work? Well, it, it we didn't know. And then God chose David, and now He's assuring David that your house will be the house from which kings come, all ultimately all the way down through Messiah. And says, "I'll establish His kingdom, and He'll build a house for My name, and I'll establish the throne of His kingdom forever." I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. And then it goes on to say, but I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I won't violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. That's the end of the reading from Psalm 89 today. It's where I picked up the rest of that after with the stripes of men part. But, but that's the promise that God made, and the, and the promise runs all the way through to Jesus, who is an, a Davidic line and, in, and the heir, the rightful heir to the throne, but not just to the throne of men, but to the throne of God as well. And so when we believe in him, we enter into his rest because he is our rest. He, he has died and passed through the veil and, and been resurrected. And we know that faith in him is the key to that. And, and therefore our hope is secure. It's, it's as secure as the reality of the resurrection. The only man resurrected. I mean, Buddha wasn't resurrected from the dead. Muhammad wasn't resurrected from the dead. None of those people that you would follow if you follow other religions were resurrected from the dead. And so your hope is then going to be built on some things you do. And then it's still just a hope that, that has no guarantee. With Jesus, he says, believe in me. And you'll have eternal life. And his resurrection is all the proof we need. Of that, because now he's at the right hand of the Father, pleading for us, interceding for us, and so our hope is secure. And and there's the first place we can rest, but we can also rest in life as well. Um, you know, we are the people Paul's talking to in in this passage where he writes to the Ephesian church. Remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You know, is some for people like me who have been around this and believed this all my life. I mean, there have been times, there's never been a time when I didn't believe the truth where I didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he died for my sins on the cross, and that he was resurrected from the dead, then then rose 40 days later, and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. I've always believed that. I, I, I don't think there's ever been a time in my life when I didn't believe that was true. I, there were times in my life when that didn't matter to me, 
because I was so consumed with my own stuff, whatever I wanted to do, whatever, you know, um, whether that be work or partying or whatever it was, it, you know, that, that was way on the back burner. And, and the problem is, as long as it's on the back burner, we're not entering into that rest. David's going to stay in that rest as long as he continues to follow God. It's when David steps out in sin that that, that, that rest is disturbed and he begins then to have problems within and problems without. But, but David had to learn that through a lot of trials before he ever gets to the point where we see him in 2 Samuel 7. David's been through a lot, and most of it not from his own making. He made some mistakes along the way, certainly. But, but a lot of it was he had an enemy, and that was the king Saul. And so Paul is saying, this is who you really were. You had no hope in the world. I don't care what you believed is what he's saying. It doesn't matter to me what gods you served or what you believed during that period of time. I'm telling you, you had no hope. You were cut off from the covenants of promise. And that covenant was intended to, to, to allow God's people to enter into rest. But it was contingent. The, the enjoyment of rest is and was contingent upon um, sin, sin being the thing that causes us to lose our rest repentance being the thing that that allows us to come back into that place of rest in the promise because we've got to deal with that stuff in our own lives that leads to a lot of our problems you know a lot that's out of our control certainly but but those things that are out of our control are things that where we need to to say lord you got this and so paul is saying look you you used to be people who had no hope in the world at all. And this is language similar to Hosea, when Hosea initially names his children things like not loved. Um, it, it's, it's that is what Paul's saying. That's who you used to be. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. (coughs) There's two kinds of hostility Paul's talking about. The hostility between the circumcised and the uncircumcised being one of them. And then the greater hostility is the hostility between mankind and God. And that hostility has been there since the first sin in the garden. <coughs> and that was actually the, the person that, that initially was hoped would bring them rest was Noah. That's what his name means, and, and that's what we're told in Genesis 5, is they named him that and said, because he will be the one to bring us rest. The, in, in Judaism, so you'll know, <coughs> the way that, that they interpret that and that, the, what they believe about Noah, in addition to the ark, obviously, <coughs> I'm sorry, I've got a tickle in my throat, is, is that, um, that he invented the plow. Because rest from their labors is, is the labor that was required after the fall to get food from the ground. And so only by labor, by the sweat of the brow, will that happen. And so what they believe is that Noah invented the plow. But did Noah bring them rest from their labors? No. (coughs) Because sin. 
It's as simple as that. He, he could have, would have, possibly, but sin entered the world. <coughs> but Noah didn't save anybody except his family. And then <coughs> Abraham could have brought him into rest. But, but God prophesied well in advance that wouldn't happen, that they'd be in slavery first. Moses couldn't quite bring them into rest because of his sin. So they had not experienced this rest, even though that was the covenant promise, and they didn't experience it because of sin. And so Jesus <coughs> reconciles us to God and breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between mankind and God and then from man and man. The, the separation that was caused because of sin is now healed and we can relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ across all boundaries. And in America today, there, there's a group of people who are trying really hard to divide us against through other boundaries like color or um, sexuality or male-female, all those kinds of things. And they're, they're working really hard to restore the dividing wall of hostility. And to that, we, the church, have to say no. We are one in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> I, I don't apologize for the sin of my ancestors. I, I, don't, I don't grovel before anybody with that sin. Nope. That's taken care of in the blood of Christ. Doesn't mean that I'm unaware of it or that I, that I, that I make nothing of it. But, but it's, it's a way to get power over somebody else, actually, is to hold those sins against them. And we can't do that. We can't allow anybody to do that because what ends up happening is it's going to create further and further hostility. No, no, no. The dividing wall has been broken down in Christ Jesus, and we are one with him. And I stand positionally in him. And all men and women are my brothers and sisters <coughs> because we are all created in the image of God. And we can't allow us to be divided this way. We can't allow that to happen. And so he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, both circumcised and the uncircumcised. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household with God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the, whole, being the cornerstone. In him the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together with the dwelling place, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. <clears throat> that we've got to understand that. And we've got to understand two things, right? And that is, this is that we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all one in him. Period. I'm not... Um, I'm not divided from somebody because of, of my skin color, my nationality, my gender. <coughs> None of those things. And I'm not going to allow you to say that I am because we are all doing the same thing. And that's what we see in this, this gospel passage. And that is the, the, so he sent the apostles away, right, and, and sent them on a mission. And then now he comes back and he wants to get away with them. He says, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Because they've, they've just experienced this great thing. And one of the things about doing ministry is when you experience something great, you're really vulnerable and you don't know it. Because there's, there, there can be a crash on the backside of that. Because <coughs> Satan doesn't want you to enter into that rest. So many were coming and going and they had no leisure to even eat. 
They went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves, but many saw them going, recognized them, ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He began to teach them many things. Jesus could never get away. After he started his ministry, he could never get away. Not ever. The closest he ever came probably was the Mount of Transfiguration. <clears throat> when they'd crossed over, they came to land. At, this is We've skipped down about 20 verses, by the way. This is after that first part. When they crossed over, they came to Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. He's trying to get away again with the disciples, and he just can't. Because people want to come to him. They know there's power there, and they want to come to him. And they have recognized who he is, and they want to be with him. They want to hear from him. They want to see him do great things. They've got all their needs is essentially what it's saying they bring to Jesus. And wherever he was, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of the garment that as many as touched it were made well. And that's what we need to do. That attitude of wherever Jesus is, I'm going. Because I just need to touch the fringe of his garment. Because the fringe of his garment is where the power and the authority were. That's why when David cut off the, the hem of Saul's garment, he felt remorse beyond belief. He felt so much guilt because what he had done, he has robbed Saul of that which, which pointed him out as the king and identified him. That's what the, that fringe of Saul's garment would have identified him as the king. And when he cut that off, what he did was he realized, oh my gosh, what I've just done is I've, I've said I no longer recognize this man as God's anointed. I've taken away that power and that authority and that symbol of all of that. And he begged Saul's forgiveness. And so when people come, and the, like the, the woman with the issue of blood, and here, they want to touch the fringe of the hem of his garment. They want to get just that close is good enough. And that's what we need to be. That's the attitude that we need to take. We need to follow hard after him. And we can do that by reading his word. We can do it by prayer. But we can also do it by action. It's not completely inactive rest. No. It's seeking and saying, where is he? And then go in there with all our heart. Nothing should hinder us from chasing hard after him to, to just reach out and grab the fringe of his garment that we might experience the rest that's available to us in Jesus Christ. And only in Jesus Christ. Because he alone has been resurrected from the dead. And so hope is secure because of that. And if I know the future is taken care of, if I know eternity is taken care of, then I can begin to enter into that rest in my life today. And I can be begin to experience that. Because I can trust Him for everything else between now and eternity. We agonize over things because we think it's our responsibility. But the reality is, is that, it, that, that it, all we've got to do is do our part. And the end of that is not up to us. It's up to Him. We just do the things that are set before us day to day without agonizing over tomorrow. He wants us to enter into that rest. Do we want it? Because, you know, I'll tell you, a lot of my life, I ha I, 
I, I, I could objectively say I didn't want it because I said everything else over that. And I believed that everything depended on me. And other people encourage me to feel that way. John, if you essentially those phone calls I was telling you about earlier, if I, it, what they were saying was, see, things fall apart without you. You know what? They really fall apart without Jesus. And, you know, whatever happened today, nobody's going to remember it in three weeks. It'll be okay. Whatever it is you're hoping for, whatever it is you're planning for, whatever it is you're working hard for, do your part. Leave the results to God. You can. The resurrection tells you he's got it. He's got it taken care of. Just rest. Just rest.